Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Let's go. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Jake's one of our college leaders. He's going to read our passage for us. It's Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you do not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So, in the first few chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is inviting us to consider what life looks like apart from God. And he's searching for meaning in life apart from God. The term is under the sun. The term that he will always use to talk about a pursuit of life apart from God is the word hevel. It means meaningless, of no significance. And he's dealt with all of our different idols in our lives, all of our different pursuits of things that we make into God. He's dealt with money. He's dealt with pleasure, possessions experiences, career, ambition. He's dealt with everything in our lives where we might be tempted to say, if only I had this, then. We say that? Anyone? We got honest people today? Of course we do. All throughout our life, if only I had a better job, if only I had a different spouse, if only I had a nicer car, then... And that's what Solomon has been addressing, is our tendency to think that something else will satisfy us. Now, right in the middle of this book is a passage that, it's interesting, it's very different than the passages we've seen. He's, he's dealing with life, and then he's going to pause on these verses 1 through 7, and instead of looking at false gods, lowercase g gods that we pursue, He's going to remind us of the true God, capital G, God. And it's a very sobering passage in the middle of a book on life. And he starts with this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. He's talking about fear. Now, when I say the word fear, I don't mean scared, afraid, panicked, but what he is inviting us into in our pursuit and our looking at life is there is a fear of God that is healthy. There is a healthy fear of God. My wife and I do, we have done a lot of remodeling at our house. Basically, every room of our house has been different. It's one of my, my wife's passions, and I do it because I like her. I like the finished project, but I don't enjoy the process. 
So we went throughout our entire house doing remodels. And this past, last summer, she wanted to, we had a deck out behind her house that was really ugly and old. And so we decided to remove the deck and put in pavers. And really it's a section about the, looks like the length of this stage. Looks like, it seemed like about six times this stage size. And that's what we did last summer. We had one of our friends come over, and I use the term friends loosely, who is in the industry, and he's like, oh yeah, this is easy. Easy. It was a setup. It was a total setup. I think my wife and him were in on it, as a matter of fact. Oh yeah, a couple weeks, you can, you can hammer this out. That was last June. About the middle of August, we finished. We had to dig out underneath the deck. I hired a couple of the football players with strong backs, paid them to dig out. We had to lay pavers. But in, in the midst of the project, one of my ideas, and it may have been a dumb idea, was I wanted to put a gas fire pit, fire pit in the middle of these pavers, right? And, and I didn't want to deal with the propane tank where you have to go hook it up and then go get a new tank. I, I want to take it, connect it to the house. We happened to have a gas line coming out of our house that had been closed off right where our pavers were and where that fire pit was. And so I got on, what, what, what do you do whenever you do home remodeling projects? You get on YouTube, right, to figure it out. And so I got lessons on how to hook up a gas line. You have to go underneath, you have to dig a deep trench underneath the pavers and then come up to hook up the fire pit. I went to a few supply stores in town. I said, here's what I need. And they said, you're going to do this? Yeah, why not? And I started to learn as I started talking to professionals that hooking up a gas line to your house, natural gas, there needs to be a healthy level of fear. Because if one fitting is off, I go to light that thing and I am here no longer. So I hook it all up and when I, when I was doing my research and talking to professionals and YouTube, they, they said you have to test it after it hooks up. So I'm thinking, well, let's just, let's just do the cigarette light test, right? To see if it, no, that's not how you do it. You get soapy water and you spray every joint to see if there's any bubbles coming out. And if there's bubbles coming out, that means gas is leaking. Because of the urgency that these people put into my life in doing this project, I mean, I use a gallon of that stuff on every joint. I'm just spraying, spraying, spraying. Healthy fear. I wasn't afraid, and every time now I go to turn on the gas and sit by the fireplace, I'm not afraid, but there's a healthy level of fear that guards how I operate. Make sense? And that is the context to which Solomon says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, we talk a lot here about God's grace, don't we? All the time. It's what we hang our hat on. His grace and love. Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Like we preach the God of love and grace of the Bible, which is true, yet there is another side to God. And we have to be cautious that we don't just preach that, preach that, preach that, oh, God's kind, God's grace, God's love, without understanding there is a healthy fear to this. Here's Romans 2. Do you suppose, oh man, that you who judge those who practice things and yet you do them yourself, that's the context, 
that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Or you, you make presumptions based on God's kindness. Do you presume the riches of a kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. See, the Bible holds this balanced view of God, that God is loving, but he's just. And a balanced view of us, that yes, we have the kindness and grace of God displayed to us, yet... That kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Guard your steps. So a question, who do we talk about when we talk about God? When you hear the term God, what comes to your mind? Because we live in a culture where there's many God, right? We have the country music version of God. You know that one. That's in all the country songs. Uh, we have the patriotic view of God, that God is always on the side of America, We have the view of God that, oh, he's the man upstairs. Guard your steps when we go to talk about God. That's what Solomon is inviting to. Who, who do we talk about when we talk about God? They just led us, the worship team led us through a beautiful song talking about God's faithfulness, his promises. Just like people write books this thick on the nature of God. A few things we believe here. God is the creator of all that God is eternal. He has no beginning and no ending. That God is independent. He needs nothing to sustain him. God doesn't need you. God is sovereign. He's above all. He does all that he wants to do. All that he desires he can do. God is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. God is not progressing with our culture as we learn new things. He is the same. He's always been the same. Now, we may learn more things about the reality of how things are. He is not, oh, wow, I'm glad you taught me that. God's true. His standard is absolute truth. We live in a culture now where we, I get to decide what my absolute truth is. That's not how it is. God decides that. God is of ultimate worth and value and the object of ultimate affection. That God is love, yet God is justice. Who do you talk about when you talk about God? Who do you think about when you think about God? That God is not here for us, but in fact, we are here for Him. The Westminster Catechism, one of the foundations of our faith, says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Who do I think about when I think about God? Who do I talk about when I talk about God? Who do I sing about when I sing about God? So Solomon, in the middle of this passage, in the middle of this book, this beautiful book on the nature and reality of life, reminds us of how big God is and really how insignificant we are. And he gives us a few cautions. I'm normally not a three-point preacher, but I have three points today. He gives a few cautions, broken rituals, endless words, and empty vows. Broken, broken rituals, 
endless words and empty vows. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now, when the teacher writes this, when he's talking about the house of God, he's referring to Solomon's temple, which was beautiful. It it was the um, foundation of, of religious worship in Israel. It was the center of everything that was their culture. They were proud of it. And he says, when you go to the temple, guard your steps. As breathtaking as that temple was, it's never meant to be the source of awe. That actually the God that it points to is the source of all. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, we have to make sure we understand this. When he says that the house of God, the church, it's not about the building. And this is something that I didn't understand growing up, probably wasn't believed growing up, where I was like, anyone here, that, like, boy, get your hat off in God's house. Anyone hear that one? You know, dress up when you go to God's house. God's house is not brick and mortar. Now on the backside of the cross, God's, God's house is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in people, in believers. Like this theater is no more sacred on a Sunday morning than it is on a Saturday night. It's no more sacred. So he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near and listen is better than to offer a sacrifice of fools. He's talking about the reality of broken rituals that we can participate in in our worship. And maybe two I'll talk about is formalism and legalism. Formalism is the practice that that the church focuses more on what it does than who it's talking about. It's when you put your liturgy above your worship of God. This is the way we do it here. That's formalism. The liturgy of a church is meant to point us towards God, but if not, we're not careful, it will become a replacement for God. And I say this as a church, like for a, I don't know what you call us, a more modern church, a new church, we have a lot of liturgies that most churches in a, in a more modern context don't have. Would you agree with that? But we have to be cautious that they never replace and become the place of our affections. Formalism is the temptation for all of us that we show up every Sunday and we go through the motions. We know the routine. We stand up, we sing, we clap after the end, we sit down, hood or loads, or someone does a sermon, like, yeah, that's good, take our communion, go home. Question, how do you arrive on Sunday morning? How do you arrive? Some of you woke up five minutes before you had to leave. Right? Come in late. You're still sleepy. Question, do you arrive to work that way? How do you arrive? Here's a question. What do you do the night before? How late do you stay up? And then expect to come in here early and be ready to go and ready to meet with one another and commune with God. Or do we come in sleepy? He challenges us with this idea of formalism, that we can just go through the motions. Covenant members, regular attenders, how do you give 
here. We teach, we believe the Bible teaches sacrificial generosity. Yet, from Scripture, God could care less about our money if it's not coming from a heart of worship towards Him. It's one of the reasons we don't pass a plate here. We want your giving to be voluntary and out of love, not out of duty. 1 Samuel 15, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying in the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams, meaning the sacri- an offering that you would give. How do you give? Is it formalism? Is it just, well, that's what I do? And I think Solomon, the teacher here, would invite us to, uh, to, to look at where are broken rituals part of my life? Legalism. Legalism is, is whenever you take something that isn't a law of God and you make it a law of, a, a law of God. Boy, our music and our preaching, it, it, has to, it better look like this. An older guy came to my house a few weeks ago to fix something in my house, and I was talking to him. He asked me what I did. It's always interesting conversation when someone asked me that, and I told him I was a pastor at a church, and he said, oh, you're probably one of those cool churches that have that guitar music. <laughs> said, well, what do you mean? Well, I went to a church a month ago, my church, and they started doing that guitar music, and I left in the middle of the service. I went to another church, and they had the guitar music too. Now, we can chuckle, but do we not have our own legalistic things that are we value and say, you better not mess with this? We all do. Of course we do. Legalism is setting religious rules. Hear me, older people, legalism. The younger generation, they are easy targets. They're easy targets. To point out the sins of the younger generation, yet not deal with our own idolatrous hearts. It's legalism. And it's the problem Jesus had with the religious leaders in Israel. They loved their liturgy and their history. Above, it revealed how much they loved God. They had rules and restrictions that weren't in the Bible, and they used them to exclude and condemn others. And it's the issue that Jesus had with the religious leaders. To draw near and listen is better than to offer a sacrifice of fools. See, biblical listening and hearing changes the heart. It's heart change. But fools come and give broken rituals and not realize they're the ones that need to repent. There is never a Sunday, there's never a Monday that you and I don't need to repent. Repentance is a beautiful thing in our lives. It's reorienting our hearts back to God. But the fool comes here and says, boy, I hope so-and-so is here to hear this sermon. Broken rituals is one of the dangers of not guarding our steps before God. The next one, endless words, verse 2 of chapter 5. Be not... Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
How many of you would save a lot of pain in your life if you'd take that last few verses, that last line and apply it? <laughs> yep. Let our words be few. He's speaking of our tendency to speak to or about God without considering our words. Like there are a few times in the Bible when men were able to see part of the glory of God. Just a glimpse of the glory of God. When that happens, their words are few. They actually fall down in fear. Let your words be few. He's talking about our tendency in our understanding or dealing or talking about God to use flippant words. Let, let me give you a couple. Well, God said, dot, dot, dot. When you say that, make sure it's something God actually said. As revealed in the Bible. Here's the one. Well, God would not, dot, dot, dot. Like that guitar music. Well, the God I believe in, that's a great one. It's this idea, well, I can make my own version of God. Again, the version of God, if you want to know truth, go to the Word. It's God revealing Himself to humanity. Listen, I get this one. Hey, God told me that Hill City should dot, dot, dot. Here's my response. Well, that's funny because God did not tell me that. One young people one time told me, well, God told me that I'm not supposed to work. Man, I wish God would tell me that. That's convenient. Work with college students for years. College students, we, they're passionate. They're seeking. What is God's will for my life? Oh, I just, I just, I just believe God's revealed to me. This is his will for my life. And I'm like, you're 21. And you're talking about the rest of your life. Like, if you heard the voice of God, I will not interject. But did you? There's a whole sermon I do with college students about every couple of years. Um, if you want to know God's will for your life, I can tell you your will, his will for your life. There's several passages where it says, this is the will of God for you, dot, dot, dot. Google that. You'll know God's will for your life. And it has nothing to do with whether you should move to St. Louis or Kansas City. It's who you're becoming. Now, you should be a Cardinals fan over a Royals fan, but that's a different model. I just, I saw the Royals hat over here and I had to take it. Being cautious how we speak to other people. And I am one, and many of you have, I've had this interaction with, I am one that, that I believe has a prophetic gifting to see into the goodness and lies of others. Not in some creepy way where I can like read your fortune or, or tell your future, but just to see things in you that maybe you've never seen in yourself. When I do that, one of the things I make sure and say is, hey, I see this in you. This part of your character, you are steadfast, you are joyful, you are kind. Or I might even say, hey, I could see you, I could see God using these gifts to call you into full-time ministry, but I, without a straight-up voice from the Lord, will not look on them and say, you need to be in full-time ministry, that's God's will for you. I don't know that. Right? It's flippant words. It's our desire just to say things because they sound good. And Solomon's going to remind us, be, be careful. Guard your steps. Let your words 
be few. It's self-righteous posture. Here is me and all of the good that I have done. Anyone been there before? I have. Here is me. Look at me and all that I've accomplished. And you all just need to act a little bit more like me. It's flippant words. It's words that are just thrown out. No, the hope is not that you look like me. The hope is you look like Jesus. And he's inviting us to this accurate view of self that leads to an accurate view of God. Or an accurate view of God that leads to an accurate view of self. He is holy. I am ultimately flawed, yet loved by him. There is nothing good in me that I can do to get myself to God. Luke 18. Jesus says this. He told a parable. Because apparently in those days there were some that trusted in their own righteousness and treated others with, with contempt because of that. So glad we moved on from those days. Here's this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, who was the hero of their faith, and the other a tax collector, who was despised. The Pharisee, standing up himself, by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even the tax collector. Because God, I fast twice a week. I give tithes at all that I have. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself Will be exalted. Let your words be few. Here's a good two words for you. Why me? But for the grace of God, I ruin my life. Anyone? Why me? Why? Why would he save me? Why would he show his grace and mercy to me? Verse 3 says, a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. It's under this idea of endless words. It's, it's just a, a little comparison. He says, a dream, a vision comes with much business. So when I say to Michael and Brad, hey, I've got an idea, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. When Emily comes to me and says about a house project, I have an idea, there's a lot of business that's getting ready to come my way. That's a comparison. Just like that, a fool's voice with many words. One, one thing, and some of you um, that are a little more seasoned in years, I wonder if you've noticed, I, I think I have, the older I get, the less I talk. And I'm not saying just like with friends hanging out, but I'm saying just the less that I'm like, all right, here's how it is. I was way more dogmatic in my 30s than I am now. I do a Zoom call every other week with all the pastors of our Salt Network churches, and Troy, who's the founder of the Salt Network, is a, uh, has been in ministry longer than anyone. It's amazing on those calls how little he speaks, but then when he does, it's just like mic drop. 
question. Are you always the first one to speak? When you speak, do you go on and on and on? He says, let, let your words be few. Proverbs 10, 19, the words, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Endless words. The temptation in our worship of God is just to talk about God in ways that maybe not be accurate about ourselves in a way that's lifting ourselves up. Then lastly, empty vows. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, a vow is a promise. When you make a promise to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Here we go again. Let your mouth lead, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? He cautions us about our promises to God. And he says, it's better not to speak than to offer a promise that you won't keep. When I work with young married people, which I do a lot, I do a lot of premarriage counseling, the first session of premarriage counseling, I have them read their marriage vows that they're going to say, till death do me part. And I try to give them a sense of urgency and the weight of the vow you are making is not just a vow to the other person, it's actually a vow to God also, and you're saying for the rest of your life, and that is a big deal. And Solomon's talking about our tendency just to throw out vows. Well, I promise I will do this. I will never. And not think about them. It's a reality of manipulating God. God, I will do something for you. Here's my vow. If you'll do something for me. One of my daughters is very good at coming up to me and saying, Dad, we haven't had a daddy-daughter date in a while. Because she wants to go Chick-fil-A. <laughs> She don't care who takes her there. She just knows she can melt my little heart. Or, hey, we really need to spend some family time together. Okay, well, let's go rake the yard. Well, no, I mean, like, go out and do something fun, right? It's, she really wants to find excuse to go do something, go eat somewhere, go have fun, and we do it to God. God, if you will just give me this job, or God, if you'll just give me this raise, I promise I will give more generously. Anyone? Liars. All of you, you're lying. God, hey, if you just give me this girl, I will serve you with my whole life. I may have said that one a few times. God, I promise I will never do that sin again. This is the last time, God, no, I'm serious. I'm going to take my sin, I'm going to burn it in the fire to show you it's the last time I'm going to do it. How'd that work for you? I get diagnosed with cancer, and so, well, I got to get back to church. God, I'll go to church if you'll heal me. Young people, God, I will go anywhere you send me. 
No, you won't. No, you won't. There's a situation with a friend that's gone bad. God, if you'll just fix this, I'm, I'm going to read my, I'm going to read Romans before I go talk to them so that you'll make sure and fix this situation. It's empty vows. It's empty promises. He says, guard your steps. Be careful who you talk about, think about when you think about God. For verse seven, when dreams increase, he's going to say it again and words grow many. There is heaven. There's our word. But God is the one you must fear. So here's what it's going to show us. Even our religious activity can be a source of hevel in our life. Coming to Hill City Church on Sunday can be just as hevel as wanting a bigger house. It's all about our heart. See, the goal of the teacher here is to point us back to a healthy fear of God, that God is one of endless awe and wonder. Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, here we go, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, healthy fear of God. Yes, he loves you and he's, sacrificed, he's gracious and kind and merciful, yet he's a consuming fire. So let our words be few. See, we need a balanced view of God because it leads to a balanced view of ourself. See, see this, is, this is the ambivalence that we hold as believers. Like, we have a God of the Bible that is love, right? He's love. I, I drove by a church sign yesterday there would not be a church that I would invite any of you to go to. And it says on the sign, our God is love. Yes. Yet, our God is also wrath and justice. He's both at the same time. We need a balanced view of God. We need to see God for who he is. A.W. Tozer said this, I think he said it from someone else from long ago, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God? So we got to hold this reality that God is loving and just at the same time. And then here's the next thing, that I am a sinner I'm more broken than I will ever realize. I'm more broken than I will ever let you see. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever that really in my sin, I think the chief end of God is to glorify me and make me happy. Right? I'm a sinner. Yet, I'm a saint. Right? Over and over in the New Testament, you're a sinner, you're broken, you're in need. Yet, over and over in the New Testament, to the saints, to the loved one, to the chosen ones, to the children, to the beloved, it's both. We need a balanced view of God, we need a balanced view of ourselves, And this is such a difficult balance. 
So much that two of the smartest people in our Christian faith of, of recent that you guys have read, A.W. Tozer said the chief end of man is, or I'm sorry, he says, what he, that's the catechism, what, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Anyone heard of C.S. Lewis? Here's what he says. He says, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God, what Tozer said. But here's what he says, but God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only the most important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it relates to how he thinks of us. This is so difficult, this balance, even to smart people that we read can't figure out which one it is. We need a balanced view of God. God is holy. He's loving. He's merciful. He is slow to anger. Yet, he is a God of wrath. You and I are a sinner, more broken than we'll ever realize of deep struggles that we want to hide from everyone else. Yet at the same time in Christ, we are holy children loved by God. So it's a tension, and it's a tension that we have to constantly hold. Like here, I want you to know the grace of God. I preach it every week. You hear the passion in my voice that you know in spite of your sins, you are loved by God. Is that fair? Is that not fair? Thank you. Thank you. Over and over. I'll, I'll say this a lot. I don't care what you did last night. It doesn't define you. God still loves you. He invites you, right? Yet at the same time, as I preach the grace and mercy of God, the danger is that we play games with God. That we use His grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card to justify everything we want to do. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I know how I wrestle with that. Do you have an honest pursuit of God? Meaning, do you know your sin and brokenness? Do you confess that to God, to others, instead of hide it? Yet at the same time, do you know your identity? There's someone loved by God. Because when you know your identity, you can operate out of that identity. Hear me. You know what sinners do? If your identity is, oh, I'm just a sinner, what do sinners do? They sin. If I'm a saint beloved by God, and I believe that, I will more likely live that out. We need a balanced view of self. So Solomon says, fear God. Have no confidence in yourself for salvation, yet have confidence in God for salvation. That's the work we have to do. It's the gospel. That you, based on no merit of your own, can be united with God based on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And in that, we have a confidence. Not in my religious action. Here's how Hebrews says it, 10, 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, here we go, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hill City, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Not you who vowed. Not you who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. So through Christ, I have no confidence in myself, yet I have deep confidence. Because in Jesus' life, he became my representative and yours. In Jesus' death, he became our substitute. In Jesus' resurrection, he became our life. In Jesus' ascension, he became our advocate. And we are now sustained because he is at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf right now. Hear me. There is not a single moment that you and I don't need a mediator not a single moment that we don't need a good high priest mediating on our behalf. By my blood they are saved. By my resurrection they have hope. There's not one moment you don't need a mediator. Hebrews 7, that he is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus the great high priest is making intercession for you right now to the Father. It is by my blood that they are made whole. May that be your confidence. May those be your words. May your promises be, here's what you are doing, not what I am doing. That we might have a healthy fear of God. Let's pray together.